This is DTC Growth Hacking with Rob McGray. Brought to you by Field Test. Advertising simplified. Hi, you're listening to DTC Growth Hacking presented by Field Test. Field Test, advertising made simple. My name is Rob McGray, and guess what? Today is episode 20. Now, I, I know that's not like Prairie Rose numbers, or and it's definitely not Joe Rogan numbers, but for us here at Field Test, it's an accomplishment nonetheless. We really wanted to just stop for a moment and thank all of the amazing guests that we've had on so far for being so incredibly generous with their time and their insights and their experience and journey and stories. And also, I wanted to thank the listeners. The response to the podcast has been exceptional, and so many of you have reached out to send congratulations or to talk about some particular episode or something that one of our guests said, and it's just been really moving, and I want to thank everybody. Um, that, that type of validation and feedback really, uh, really moves this things forward and gives us momentum. And, and so, you know, we're psyched that you're enjoying it. We're psyched to do it. And, uh, as long as people are, are enjoying it, we're going to, we're going to keep going. Today happens to be, uh, the best day ever, 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 because we've got my friend Zachary Glassman on the show. Now, Zach is the director of e-commerce at Miraflora. And he's been on this incredible ride that he's going to share with us. And as you're about to find out, by the way, and I am a little intimidated about this, but he has probably the best radio voice of all time. Zach, how are you? I'm doing great, Rob. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me on. And I'm going to do my best to not have my voice crack so that I don't let you down at all. now, now, just listen how silky smooth that is. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to try to copy you, Zach, because that's your thing. You're the guy with the radio voice. I'm the guy with the – every once in a while, you can detect the Rhode Island accent come out, although I try to hide it. Yeah, wow. I'm glad to hear anyway. that I have the voice for radio to go with my face for radio. Yeah. No, I think <laughs> – I, I mean, if you weren't – I would think that you were in radio uh, meeting you. I'd be like, that guy is totally in radio. That's his thing. Maybe that's the next chapter. Okay. But right now, Zach, in this chapter, <laughs> chapter, I don't know, let's say chapter seven, uh, we're talking about digital marketing. And um, ultimately, you know, you've had this this pretty wild journey over the last decade or so, and you've told me a little bit about it. And, uh, you know, I just kind of wonder, like, how did you, how did you kind of get into this business? Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, I think like a lot of us who are in this business, it, it's a confluence of things. No one ever uh, has a straight or fewer and fewer people, let's say, have a straight line career path these days. I've had a bunch of jobs, like uh, a lot of millennials and people in my age range. I've studied to do a lot of things from being a priest to Middle Eastern studies and and a lot in between, but really uh, several years ago kind of fell into the digital marketing aspect. I really ha- have enjoyed it so much. Started just by doing like some light graphic design and web design edits and here and there and really came more and more into the customer segmentation and the advertising end and really understanding more about online consumer behavior. And that's what really has attracted me to the industry and and what's made me put down roots. Do you think, do you think that's a common, you know, a little off subject here, but, but 
not really. Uh, do you think it's a common story where people, especially around your age, who were starting careers during what we could call like this, you know, kind of marketing technology, you know, explosion that found themselves like really good at um, and and very hireable as digital marketers? Yeah, it, it's interesting because my younger brother, younger brother, so this is very intimidating, is a surgeon. And he's wanted to be a doctor since he was 14. And that's the only job he's ever wanted to have. He's about the only person I know in my orbit who hasn't had several different jobs with several different hats. And I think, you know, it's interesting to see you mentioned the, the technological tools, which I think is such a big piece of it. And really, you know, I remember there was a thing on Twitter doing the round several months ago about someone hiring for a job and you had to have like 20 years of Python experience and Python isn't 20 years old. So I do think that there's like being marketable in this marketing industry is, is a very interesting thing because sometimes, you know, people don't know what they're asking for. And it's a lot like, are you going to be tr trustworthy enough to kind of steer this ship when maybe... It's at a company where not everyone knows every piece of this puzzle. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I, I recently got um, involved with a, a new organization, and we had this. It's very early in the the life of this company, and we had this discussion, uh, the CEO and I, and we were talking about, you know, org charts. And one of the things about the company is that we, we see it as an opportunity to do things you know, quote unquote, the right way. And we were talking about these artificial limits that are placed on all of us that, you know, for, for no apparent reason, just because nobody wants to, you know, use their imaginations to, to think beyond the limits. And we were looking at this org chart and we kind of had this realization that the org chart was just another means to put somebody in a box to say that of all those great things you are, we only really need like, cause you're probably like eight times the size of this box and talent, but just, just, we just want this little tiny <laughs> bit of you that fits into this box and the rest we don't care about. And it just seemed to me such an, a, 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 a the wrong, craziest way to think about this possible. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, that's such a great point. And I feel like that's, what's interesting in kind of like, as the access to capital and tools to start a business become so much more available, people are, you know, starting more businesses, you need more talent, and there's more and more situations where people are coming into a job that no one else has ever held before. And I think yeah. that's something that I've enjoyed in my career is I can't, it's been it's been about 10 years since I've had a job that someone else had before. And so that's one thing that I've really loved and, and, you know, I've been very fortunate to join organizations that kind of have given me that level of opportunity, but it's great to be able to go in and be like, you know, I I'm really into this aspect of marketing. I also really thrive in this aspect of technology and just no matter what you do, don't ever tell anyone that you know how to fix the printer and then you'll have a great time. I don't know anything about tech. I don't know anything about computers. No, I, <laughs> yeah, cannot. Exactly. I can, I cannot help you with that. I really want to, but I cannot. No, I'm just going to watch you struggle. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go. Um, you know, you mentioned that, that, uh, 
you know, in, in the career trajectory at one time was, was, um, becoming a priest. And it's so funny because I think what a, what a great, um, combination of skills, like, uh, being able to evangelize plus a marketer. Yeah. You know, that's what I've never really thought about it that way, but you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely some yeah. commonality there. It's funny. I'm, uh, you know, as a hobby, I do like home networking stuff at my house and I've built kind of this Frankenstein monster of a setup that no one can use. And, and my wife, bless her, if, if something happens to me, I, she's not going to be able to do anything. <laughs> the minute something breaks, she's screwed. Uh, but, but uh, I, I'm on these forums and stuff and I found, you know, a lot of the people who are doing these really interesting like network setups for like broadcast or streaming are doing it in churches and, mm. you know, and it hadn't really occurred to me that, you know, basically the idea of, you know, we all know what a super church is, right? And so, but I was thinking more like these small churches who their reach was rather limited, but now because of technology can, you know, they can have um, members all over the world and actually access them now, you know, in, in real time. And it just struck me as something weird, like, you know, nothing is limited because of this technology. And and again, only our imaginations are preventing us from reaching somebody with whether the message is like, you know, the Lord or, or if it's like, you know, you know, there's free delivery on pizza, you know, it's all <laughs> available right now. Right. All important messages for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I I think you're, you're right. And I think the pandemic has only accelerated that because with the kind of like supercharged growth of work from home and so many events going virtual, we've all kind of seen, you know, I think from like sea level people in a lot of industries, there's a tremendous amount of resistance to work from home because they don't get to have that, uh, kind of oversight of their employees and maybe people from like a slightly less tech oriented background are concerned about the stability of the tools. But now seeing like, obviously no one's glad that this pandemic happened, but I do think this is one of the things that, you know, it's going to change remote work and, and decentralized communication forever. And it's going to be interesting to see kind of how that evolves as more and more things open up. I've, I've debated with a lot. I have friends who believe, you know, it's only a matter of time before it all goes back to the way it was. Um, I have others that think that this is where we're going to be for a while. I think I'm kind of like in the middle where I think there's going to be some sort of hybrid model where there'll be the idea of an office will change and what we think about that. Because, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of, you know, unfortunately negative you know, um, association with like office and having to be there and having to be there at a certain time. And it feels almost like you're checking in, someone's watching you. And I think what's been proven is that people are actually very responsible and can get their work done without, without, you know, without big brother keeping an eye on them or however we want to phrase it. But I think that people also miss people. And especially if I think back to in my early twenties, like I moved to a new town. Most of my friends came from the job. Like that was my social mm-hmm. circle. We're not necessarily the people I worked with every day, but the people around my age. And those are the people I ended up like, you know, going out on a Friday night for a drink with or whatever. And I think a lot of socialization that is positive um, comes from the workplace. In fact, I met my wife 
you know, at the office. So, I mean, if, if I had not been going, I mean, if it was today, I don't know if, if that would, no, it would happen, but I don't know if it would happen as <laughs> like it, like it did, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. And I, it, it's interesting. I do think like in this time, the like late teens and early twenties demographic are the people that I feel the worst for, because that's such, you know, for most of us, that's such an enjoyable and formative and important time of life. And if someone had asked me to stay inside my 600 square foot apartment for two years, I, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I would have been very upset. And so yeah. I, I think you're totally right. It's interesting how like, to me, like the tiers of socialization have like kind of come through in the pandemic where it went from everyone doing Zoom happy hour to everyone complaining about doing Zoom happy hour. And now it's like, it feels like it's kind of like middled out a little bit where like, I'm having drinks this evening with a friend on the East Coast. And I don't know that we would have like set up such a regular cadence if we hadn't all gotten used to doing Zoom stuff so much. Yeah, no, that's true. That's very true. Okay, switching topics though. (laughs) Okay, so so you go from... uh, you know, aspirations uh, to be a priest and you find you wake up one day and you are um, on, a, on a wild ride um, involved in the CBD industry. Like that's, that's, I, and I'm sure a lot happened in between. <laughs> yeah. I saved myself a lot of years of heartache in that one sentence if I had just trusted <laughs> in that the whole way. <laughs> What's the uh, what's so what's it like to be on the front lines of a, of an industry that didn't exist a decade ago? You know, it's the greatest. Like for sure there are stressful days and for sure, you know, things could be easier if all of our regulations were in place, which I'm sure that we'll talk about some. But before working in CBD digital marketing, I I did fashion and film both like kind of digital marketing positions. And I really liked those jobs. I really liked a lot about them. I'm not the first person to create an ad for a t-shirt and everyone has watched a movie before the movie that I'm helping to advertise. Being in the CBD industry has been really fun because there are still so many firsts and a little bit of it can get kind of like dot-com bubble days, but it is really enjoyable. And I think like, both looking at the new technologies that are available to us that weren't available five, 10 years ago. And this industry that now post 2018 is, is above ground. It's legal and it's at least starting to be properly regulated. I mean, when are you going to get the opportunity to do that? It's, it's an absolute joy. Zach, when you were growing up, what was your, uh, what was your feeling about um, cannabis? If you don't mind me asking, no, and you know, I really didn't have one. It wasn't um, something that I understood any nuance of. I'm from a very small town in Texas, uh, and it's it's a lovely p- place to have grown up, but not a place with a tremendous amount of gray. And mm-hmm. it wasn't something that I I really had any distinguishing thing. I certainly didn't know THC, CBD, CBG, any of the cannabinoid mixes. And I think that's been the interesting thing is like being kind of early in this industry, seeing people who would have had that same perspective 
adopt CBD, put it into their regimen, into their lives. I, uh, I sent, uh, some CBD lotion to my grandfather who has terrible back pain. And he, he and I talk on the phone a lot and he called me as like, well, boy, I put that lotion on my back and it didn't do anything. And so I thought I'll give it one more try. And I put it on my back and I can't ever remember feeling this good. I was like, Oh, I'm so glad. I'm glad it's worked out for you. And then there was just kind of like a long pause. He was like, do I have to vote for marijuana now? Well, you know, I'm not here to tell you how to vote. This isn't marijuana, but also maybe you could look at some of this stuff, maybe establish a little more nuance. And, and I think seeing that, like seeing it, it get adopted into more people and more cultures, especially in the kind of 50 plus demographic, which is, you know, accelerating a lot in CBD. Um, that, that's, what's really great to see is people bringing more, more nuance to it. Yeah. I, uh, I ask because, um, for me, it's been, it's been a really strange experience. You know, I grew up, you know, in the, you know, the seventies and eighties and, you know, it was clearly villainized yet all the kids tried it and, you know, um, and probably our parents, but, but it was still villainized. And I think as an adult, you know, I can't remember, maybe, maybe I was even in my late teens, you know, you'd watch like, I remember Reefer Madness was playing on MTV, you know, and, and I, I was a smart enough kid to like come to the conclusion that this was propaganda and there had been, and you did a little research and you could just read about like the, the war on, on cannabis that had started and was was backed by the paper industry or the the liquor industry or whoever you know had something to lose and uh thinking wow this is this is a pretty this is pretty silly like i can't believe we're all falling for this like there is there no common sense and you know and and at the same time the way that that people ingested it was kind of like for the most part just felt like the way we would drink moonshine, like you were just getting <laughs> ripped, right? It, it wasn't for the health benefits. It was, it was self-medication to, to get high. And now all of a sudden we've kind of reached this point really quickly, like within five years where people are starting to identify what they may like about it or how it may help them or to, to, to use your words, how it might fit into their, their regimen. And, uh, and not in a like I want to get completely you know spacey, but I, I you know I have I have a sore back or I need to focus or I, I'm having trouble sleeping. You know, it's very it became very medicinal very quickly. Totally, and I think it's interesting. Like now, I'm I'm really thinking about it, and you know, the only perspective I had on a person who regularly used any sort of cannabis was like. Brad Pitt's character in True Romance, like just someone who's like zonked out on the couch all day, every day, and doesn't realize he's about to get murdered. But I don't know if that's—it's not technically a spoiler yeah. alert, but that movie's more than twenty years old, so I think we're in the clear. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, he's just doing bong rips all day. Exactly. You know, that's the whole existence. And some and somehow he's in really good shape. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's part of it. <laughs> that's the worst false advertising. Yeah. He's sitting on the couch eating like cereal all day, <laughs> watching cartoons. Yeah, and he's in like shredded. the best shape of his life. <laughs> yeah. He's he, he's not going to the Marvel superhero camp or anything. Yeah. You know? No, 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 no. Just just sit on your couch. Yeah. I mean. Um but but it's crazy. You talked about regulation and a lot of the a lot of the conversations that I've had with people in the industry have been around this kind of moving target and not really sure at any given time what polished sea changes are gonna happen across ad platforms. And it you know, and it's gotta be really difficult to you know, I know you're on you work for a big brand, but I even think about these agencies that have to manage these media buys and how they must have to shift around dollars constantly based on like policy change where oh, I got to pull this off of here or this photo is no good. I mean, how, how are you guys, how are you guys handling that? And yeah, it, it's a, uh, you said a moving target and that's exactly the right word for it. Even just within the last month, Google has changed their CBD and hemp policies. And we kind of think most of these are moving in, kind of a, a linear path towards more regulation and and a more open market but that's not the case where google's policies have been more restrictive and there's there's a lot of other cases of that lately i think what we at mirafor try to do is to be as uh forthcoming with these platforms as possible you know it doesn't serve us anything if we're in this industry for the next six months, and then we get shut down across all ad platforms. I think for people who are looking to build a brand, and we're certainly not the only ones who are doing it this way, where we want to say, okay, here's all of the products that we're selling. Here's what we'd like to advertise. You tell us the rules and we will follow them to the letter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that a lot of people get because like Facebook rules and Google rules, you know, we all know that those ads aren't being reviewed by a human being. It's being reviewed by a bot. So there are false flags and things that get through that shouldn't get through. And I think that leads people to kind of split off in, in two directions where one side thinks like, I'm just going to get away with everything that I can for however long and eat with both hands until they shut the restaurant down. And the other side is trying to play by the rules, but gets increasingly frustrated because there are so many bad actors in the space. And I think with a, an industry like CBD, where it is new and and there are there are things that people should know before before using CBD, it, it it's tough when there are so many bad actors that kind of capture so much of a share of voice. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, and I don't think that I've. I might not have really taken that in enough in the past when I've been critical of the platforms. Um, I think of, uh, I, I had a, a friend and he worked for a, a company that I, I believe what their business was, was lead generation for basically these support companies that'll try to lock you in a support contract for some made up problems that you have with your computer. And their demographic is typically like, you know, older adults. Right. And it's like, and so his company was the one who would like flash the banner that said, you have a virus. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was an ad. You have a virus. Go here. Sure. 
do this, and then they'd get paid X dollars for getting somebody, you know, to call this other company um, offshore typically. And I thought it was like, you know, and this is a friend of mine who I really care about, but it was very hard for me to know that this was how this person was making their living because it was so gross and dirty. And yet the ad platforms, in my mind, weren't taking enough proactive steps to prevent this and still aren't, right? Because you're dealing with, you know, they're just, these companies are preying on the, 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 you know, the lack of understanding that cer- certain people have over technology. And, uh, and, and so I, 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 when I think about CBD, I don't necessarily think about that story, right? I don't think about the abuse that people could actually do with advertising kind of run rampant. I just think about the fact that to me, CBD is very harmless and I don't understand why we're making a big to-do about it, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And it is like, I think we all have to kind of make some version of this decision, all of those of us who work in marketing in some capacity, of like, where's the line? Of like, what will I, what will I help sell and what won't I help sell? And I think, you know, there are people who have really lofty, purposes and ambitions and, and wants to to pursue things in, in a certain way and and that's great for me personally it's really just a i i don't want to tell a lie like i want to sell something and say what it does and if that works for you if that's something that you're looking for you know i'm going to do everything i can online to find you and get this message in front of you but if it's not, I'm not going to pretend and I'm not going to try to just make what I'm selling fit into a person's argument. And I think to your point about the platforms, you know, this industry is really crying out for regulation because now so much of what you hear about CBD is dominated by people who aren't following the rules because they are taking advantage of kind of the the uncertain nature and the moving target, as you said, and that, you know, gives our whole industry a bad rap. Yeah. It's, it's really, I don't know. It's, it's such a weird, I think one, it's a weird time, right? I mean, it might be the weirdest time that we've ever (laughs) experienced um, personally, but also it's a weird time. I was talking to a, um, a friend of mine this morning. She has a PR company and, and she had this theory and I want to run it by you. It's a little off subject, but I think, but I think you'll see why I bring it up that time has accelerated so much, like the speed in which things happen now is, is, is has been condensed so ex- exponentially in terms of like before things just seemed to happen, but now they're just happening, happening, happening compounded with the fact that like a bunch of really horrible things happened, which made our kind of our tolerance for horrible things go down. Mm. Like if you think about like just, you know, the, the insurrection, like that should have been a conversation for like years, but it was gone like right away. And it was gone so much to the fact that like, I don't think anything's really going to happen. Facebook's like the, the whistleblower that came out a few days, like a week ago. About Facebook. <laughs> a week ago. And then a week ago. And Facebook, like the, the genius of Facebook PR to take down Facebook, change the narrative, and then bring it up. And the whistleblower conversation was gone. 
And we all moved on. It's crazy to me. You know, it's so interesting. I I think you're exactly right. I think about, um, you know, the, uh, I don't know if you are familiar with the Robert Caro books. Um, Anyone who listens to this, who's heard me talk for more than 10 minutes in my life has heard me mention these. So I'm sure I'm getting a lot of eye rolls, but uh, he does a series of biographies of Robert Moses and Lyndon Johnson. And there's a bit in his first biography of Lyndon Johnson, which is very thorough and starts several hundred years before Lyndon Johnson was born. We're talking about him and his brother as a kid where they would walk to this road and sit all afternoon just to see if someone new to talk to would pass by. And then, you know, I think about that. And then I think several years ago when there was the big, um, do you remember Coney 2012, the big like uh, social justice movement about the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was like kind of the first viral phenomenon that I've ever like really paid attention to. And I was super interested in just like, why is this resonating with so many people? And like, how, how big is this? And I just went on YouTube and like took the length of the video and multiplied it by the number of plays at one point. I don't remember either of those numbers. And then when I just, and so got an amount of time that if you put those viewings back to back, how long has this been playing? And it would have been since before recorded history. Like it would have been Hammurabi. And that is like, I think that just illustrates the point that you're making. Like it, it goes so fast because we packed thousands of years of conversation into this one video. And so we have to digest it fast. You know, none of us knew what squid game was three weeks ago or however long. And now you can't stop hearing about it. And, and I, I, I do. And if you don't, if you don't really know what right. it is, you feel like you're missing out. There's like a phone. Totally. Like I need to know what's. I need to go. All right, this. You know what my assignment is tonight? Marathon Squid Game. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't feel like I can't have a conversation about it. I might. I might miss out on something or the nuance of what's being said. No, it's it's crazy. Zach, I know that you've got you've got production history. You you've got creative history. Have you found that like having these skills in in your you know, in your utility belt have, have made you a better marketer? You know, it, it's, it's a very interesting thought. And I think that one of the things that I, I feel happy about in my career is developing more and more technical skills. And I do think that that's really important in a world where so many people are, you know, approaching things more as a generalist. And I, that's not bad at all, but I think to set yourself apart in the market, um, The technical skills are helpful. What's honestly the best in having, for me, different types of experience and different types of background is being able to talk to the people who are really good at that stuff and have a vision of how long it might take, what's involved. And then you can understand what you're asking of someone. Because I think we've all, I mean, anyone who's had a job has had a boss who's asked them to do something that that boss couldn't have done and has no concept of what you're asking and it is really great to be able to say to someone like oh you know can you split this up for me can we like work on this in such a way and create a timeline that like everyone feels is achievable be able to talk to people everyone loves to talk about what they're good at everyone likes to talk about their work 
being able to talk to people about like, oh, I love what you've done here. And even like, can you give me the 30 second version of how that works? Uh, you know, I think that that helps build relationships. I think people respond really positively to that. Yeah. I, uh, I had this, um, this friend of mine who was working in my, um, my group for a little while and I didn't know him real well at the time. And, uh, and I did something technical and he was like, Oh, I'm surprised you knew about that. And I was like, you, you know, I'm like the CTO at this company. <laughs> and he's like, Oh yeah, I know. But I just thought you were a business guy. What? Terrible business guy. Like I came up the tech, I came up the tech track. Like, how do you, like, what am I doing? What's going on here? But it, it's weird. Like when you, what I found was that when I was able, and this is to illustrate your point, when I was able to communicate people on their terms, the response was, was incredible. You know, when I could speak their language and, uh, you know, and I think that especially when we rely so much on, on our engineers, you know, to execute for us in, in every which way and just being able to, you know, communicate with them in ways that they can communicate versus needing a translator. Um, you know, I mean, I remember, uh, we had a company and I kind of doled up the sp- we had a pretty big office and I doled up the office. So every group had their own space and the, the engineering group didn't want any, they didn't want any windows. So that was easy. So you guys get this space and then they don't want, they wanted the lights off all the time and they're just going to sit in there in the dark with headphones and not talk to one another. And when you had to send somebody to engineering <laughs> talk to these guys, it was like, they were, they were like scared. They had to go in the basement and deal with like this zombie engineering crew. And when I would go in there and I would feel it for a second, but I'd be like, all right, I got to figure out a way to integrate into this. Like maybe I'll just ease in. I'll sit here for a little while in the dark so that they get used to my <laughs> presence, <laughs> put on some headphones and then I'll start the conference. Maybe I'll just chat with them over my laptop, even though I'm right next to them. Right. But, but trying to figure out a way to, hey, it's on your terms. I respect your process. Like I, I, I want to... I want to fit in with you so that we can collaborate and I don't want it to seem foreign or make you go through the effort. Totally. And I think, you know, there's that um, Thomas Friedman book about outsourcing where he says like one of the jobs that can never be outsourced is a great explainer and someone who can talk to an engineer and then talk to a C-suite person and then talk to a designer and get everyone on the same page. And I do, you know, like I will, I think probably I can give up on the fact that I'll never be like a truly brilliant programmer. Uh, You know, I write my code and I like do what I do, but there are people that I know who I would put in that category of truly brilliant programmers. And I do think sometimes people who are so specialized at something have a hard time bringing someone new into that to explain to them like what they've done or what the problem is or what the solution is. And if you can be there to like kind of be that advocate and be someone who is just as excited as they are about it, you know, everybody loves to work with someone like that. Yeah, no, I really like that. Hey, let me ask you a question. Um, when you joined Miraflora, how far along, like how long had the company existed? 
It had been kind of, I joined in June of this year of 2021. And the company had done a little bit in 2020, but really launched in January. So we were, they were about six months in when I joined. Okay. So it's so pretty much new, right? I right. mean, or in today's terms, 10 years, but, yeah, but in CBD years, in, in CBD years. but, but did you find that, that, you know, cause there's a conversation I have all the time. I'm a big believer in, in figuring out what the brand is before you start doing other activities. And I know that that that's not always practical for companies. Um, in fact, it's hard, right? It's it's a hard way to change how you think about things because I've I've come to the conclusion, and you know, through conversations I've had on the podcast, that that branding should very much sit at the top, and it is a strategic function, and marketing should respond to branding as the tactical extension of that strategy, if that makes sense. And, sure. and I often think that a lot of companies, especially young companies, don't necessarily believe in that and they end up trying to do them at the same time, right? Where they haven't really fleshed out the, you know, the, answered the question, if, if, we, if we believe what Ezekiel said to me is true, that the brand is the customer's reaction to you. Hmm. Right. And that's a, my, my summary of what he was saying, but that a lot of companies haven't figured out what they want that to be. And therefore they are running a tactical game, which they're after like eyeballs and revenue and forgetting about like what they're really trying to accomplish, which would then lean, lead to, you know, better impression rates and, and more sales. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think joining any organization, and, and this is true of Mirafora, it's there has to be some, you know, we don't have to be saving the world. It doesn't have to be like every credit card commercial that seems like they're bringing couples back together and reuniting families. But like, there has to be a plan. Like, and, and that's one of the things that I really like what we're doing is we grow all of our own hemp. So it's very like single source. We're using like very intense chain of custody to make sure we keep track of each plant. Our farm has only ever had two families own it. So, you know, most used cars have had more and, and all of these things are kind of building together to create like, this is a family run company where of kind of our, our leadership team, there's only a couple of us who, aren't childhood friends. So they've all been around each other for a long time and they all can still stand each other, which is always great to see. And seeing how the company kind of wants to build something that lasts. And I think that that's the difference where like, you know, we've all seen, for lack of a better term, like kind of bottom feeder companies that like spring mm -hmm. up out of nowhere, make a ton of money and then are gone if that's the way you want to do it, you know, I, I guess the tools are out there. I'm not really interested in that. And I think that that's people more and more, I think have this view of marketing and targeted advertising as it is something inherently wrong and inherently it is an invasion of our privacy. And I do very much want each person to be able to kind of know how their data is managed, know how their information is being used 
but also sometimes you get a targeted ad for something that's amazing. Like I was telling you earlier that I have like an abnormally large head and I have a hard time even buying a baseball cap that fits. And I just got a targeted ad two weeks ago about a hat stretcher, which is a product I didn't know existed. It was like $12 and I bought so many hats since that ad came out because now I can wear them again. Yeah, I, I also have a, a large head. And, and now I'm wondering if after admitting this to you on the podcast, if my I'll get ads for like big hats. If you don't, I'm going to get an affiliate link that I'll send you. <laughs> I can totally see it happening. You, you know, you know what, what I heard when you told me what you just said about Miraflora and, and you tell me if this, what you think of this, I, I'm making up on the spot, the mission of Miraflora without knowing it. But what if Miraflora's mission was to reinvigorate the American farmer? Like, like, like hang with me for a second, right? That yeah. there's all these farmers and, you know, corn, we're kind of shutting down on the corn production because everybody's realized that corn syrup's probably not the best thing to consume all the time. Um, it's We've got very unhealthy people. Uh, and in part because what we're feeding are people. Like if you think of the herd of Americans and what they're being fed by, <laughs> you know, by by you know, it's not good. And so all this farmland, and if there was the potential to reactivate it and take these family businesses as you've described, you know, um, and and get them back on track, put money back in their pockets, get that economy going again. Like imagine if, if, if a brand that that was their number one thing and everything they did was leading to that. Now, all the things that they're doing are, are good for everybody, right? They're making sales, they're helping their customers, like they're helping your grandfather with his back pain. They're helping me sleep better. They're, all the rewards they're able to reap, they're making good money. But at the end of the day, we're reinvesting in this thing that we have that we know we need to fix which is American farmers. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's crucial to us. And, you know, certainly in our community and where we're based, we're very, very loyal to the idea of doing this the right way, where even as we harvest our hemp plants, there's someone, our, our uh, family farm is just outside of Boulder, Colorado. And there's somebody around there who uses hemp stalks for some sort of fertilizer and i would not even begin to understand what it is and we sold him our entire harvest of hemp stalks for not very much money but and you know i i don't want to put words in any in the farm manager's mouth but i think we would have given them away happily just because now it's not trash someone is using this and we're continuing to to put back into this i mean i think what you're saying is exactly right and we we have kind of access to more technological tools because you don't think about, or at least maybe most people don't think about it. You might be one of the only ones who does think about it. You know, you don't think about Python and R and also farming all existing mm-hmm. under one roof at a startup. And mm-hmm. that is something that we increasingly have the tools to do more and more of. And, you know, I think that that's really exciting. And that is something where, I do kind of get a little bit, I feel a little bit tenuous about some of these 
companies who have such a grandiose promise of making the world a better place. And I understand the like Silicon Valley, like jokes around that, that have all been done quite to death. So I think it's almost like just giving an accurate picture and saying exactly like you said, like, yeah, you know, this is a business. We're here to make money. We, we have families, we have mortgages and rents to pay and all of that stuff. But when you buy it, when you use it, maybe it's not the greatest thing you've had, but you're not going to, it's not going to hurt you. You're not going to have a bad time. It's not a lie. And continuing to invest in farming and infrastructure and things that can hopefully bring that, that back. Yeah. I mean, I've always been um, somewhat fascinated with the implementation of, of technology, you know, for things like farming. And I've got some friends who have a company called Divrod and they do a like water analysis through all kinds of technology that is not invasive at all. And they can kind of like, you know, synthesize what's going on on certain lands and make predictions. And, and it's just one example of something that could really help farmers. And, you know, I think about all the things that, you know, now I'm kind of in the the space business too, and thinking about all the, all the benefits of, of being able to take an objective look at what's happening on earth, you know, in this case from, from off of earth and run analysis and, and do predictive analysis and, and to figure out like, here, here are some things we could be doing, you know, to help with say climate change, which I know something that we all think about now that it's really sure. hot in LA all the time. <laughs> um, it, it, it just, it just, for me, I love this idea that we get to be involved in businesses. And I think you share this with me and, and I haven't known you for long, but I get the sense that you have a very um, strong moral compass that, that we get to work on things that we can feel good about and, and are for good. And, and, you know, I, I, a friend of mine said this the other day in a, a speech she gave, she said, we know that good science can be good business. And, and that to me kind of said it all, that we can do these things that are really good for everybody and, and help move us forward and they can make money. You know? Right. And and okay. Which is not a crime. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. I, I, I totally agree. I think it's funny that you say like good science can be good business because I've always said, and, and I stole this from someone, but I've completely ripped it off as my own now is just the best science is like magic. And it's like the more that we do these things, the more that we have like a proof of concept, it seems like you are just pulling it out of nowhere. And I do, I, you know, I do feel that way strongly where like I, I, when I was very, very poor, I was on a film shoot for a company that I'll withhold the name of. But honestly, like I, I can, I can let a lot slide, but this was, it was awful. Like the, the commercial that we were making and I, just said, you know what, like, I, I just can't, I'm never going to want to put this on my reel. I don't want to be here. And I like quit at a time where I desperately needed the money. And not that I'm any great martyr or anything, but I do feel like being able to, to put your head on the pillow every night and close your eyes and not, not feel guilty or embarrassed about the things that you've lent your name to is, is extremely important. Yeah. I mean, you said earlier, like, we shouldn't have to lie as marketers. Like, it doesn't feel good to lie. And, you know, 
just a reflection on the time where it, it does seem like every potential issue out there is being commandeered by by someone to be a part of a, a, a cultural war that 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 in my mind is just designed to divide people. And you have, I don't know, I, I can't tell, like, I, I, this was really upsetting to me because I'd like to believe that at our hearts, all of us, we're just trying to do the right thing and we're trying to get by. Like, I honestly want to believe that, right? That no one's really, you know, no one thinks of themselves as evil. And sure, there are some people who do some heinous things. But for the most part, we're, we're, we're well-intentioned, right? But then you look at some industries that, you know, I don't know if you've caught this um, TV show or movie on Hulu about like the opioid crisis yet. Um, but you, you look at this and you're like, oh my God, you guys totally knew. You totally knew yeah. how bad this was. Like, how did you not know that? Like you, totally. like, and how was this allowed? Like everybody knew. And you think about the, the number of people that, whose lives were impacted in, in not good ways, whether, and it could be something just like, Hey, you know, my wife got hooked on opioids and kept it from me and we got divorced cause I didn't understand. And she was, you know, she got in a car accident and killed the dog. I'm just making this up, but right. like, you just don't know how many like moments and fractures that this greed caused. You know, and, and, and you just think about that and you think about, is that the business we're in, in you know, in some weird kind of way, are we connected to that? And, and could we do something like that without even knowing it? And I think, you know, it's, you can see things where kind of the whole industry or the whole vertical is, is something that, that maybe is having this detrimental impact on people's lives. Like, opioids and things but then what's almost more disconcerting to me is the people who are in other industries and kind of like worming their way in with this kind of like make a quick buck sales pitch yeah you know we see it in cbd and like we've talked about all the time even working in fashion like fast fashion and stuff like if if you care about the environment you care about the people making that that's probably not the way to go but it, it's affordable and it it gets people's eyeballs because it can change and adapt very quickly yeah and yeah it, it, it's difficult to discern and i think you know as the world becomes more complex there's there's so much more to get confused about than ever before and that's really frustrating i remember there was a lecture that Yvonne Chouinard gave at uh, Stanford a few years ago and he just said they were talking about organic cotton and the, the interviewer was asking him all of these questions about like, well, how do you source it? Where do you get it? How do you make sure there's enough? And he just at one point said, do you know, leading an examined life is a huge pain in the ass. And he's, I think about that all the time because there's so many things that now we have to think about and have to worry about that, how are you ever going to get through them all? And I think, you know, yeah. what you're saying about assuming the best in people, I want that to be true. I want people to be doing their best. And then, you know, we all don't know what we don't know. 
Yeah. I, I can't remember where this quote comes from, but I feel like I, I live it every day. This idea that the older I get, the more um, ignorant I become aware I am. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, if you had talked to me 20 years ago, uh, that version of me, I, I would have been a lot more confident in my, my knowledge. And I think that every day that goes by, I'm just like, Oh, gaping hole there, gaping hole there. Like, <laughs> when am I going to find the time to learn all these things? Because there's so much right. I don't know. And I wish that I had had this perspective, like even in, as a child in school. And I wonder, I always wonder like, you know, did Chinese children know about this? Cause they seem to learn a lot more, but this idea that, that, um, and, and that doesn't mean, I mean, China, China, not, uh, but, but you, you know, this idea that, that it's overwhelming at times, the, the holes in our knowledge and the ways that we can be exploited because of that, because of that lacking of understanding. Um, and I always wonder like, is that, does, do, do, do marketers who are not, necessarily um well-intentioned do they really understand that and like you know I, I think that probably someone like um you know what's his name steve bannon um from from the the trump campaign right. really understood that like he really understood like how to how to get people riled up, how to get under their skin, how to get them excited or, or rush limbar. Like these people really know what buttons to push and what fears to play on. And, uh, you know, and it, it just makes you wonder, like, you know, like what's our responsibility here? I, I, I have a question for you. Do you find that you are more of a data driven decision maker or an instinctual, like a gut-driven decision maker? You know, I mean, it, it's it's the the old question, right? And I think mine, there are a lot of people that I've worked with who have such great instincts and use kind of data to supplement that and back that up. What I really like is immersing myself in the data at a company or at an organization so that you understand it well enough that you know where it's going and then you can make gut decisions because you've kind of done the data background. It's like the whole don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get yeah. it wrong because then, you know, so much of our just digital marketing industry to say nothing of CBD moves so fast. And so if I kind of, ingest enough data to where I know kind of where the trend lines are for my own organization it helps me be a lot more adaptable. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I've always, I've, I've had a similar belief that, you know, the data can be a great uh, validator to the narrative that you're trying to express, but it should not be the only like, like people who just, do, you know, basically make decisions based on data. My fear is that you slowly lose the humanity, right? It's almost like artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if, if, if you have a human being involved with the learning of artificial intelligence, the human being can, can teach the AI 
how to deal with situations. It's what, it's like what we do with CAPTCHA or all the self-driving cars that are collecting all the information. It's like I'm learning from humans how to make these decisions. And in theory, the the ultimate end game will be a, you know, a piece of technology that has a somewhat of a human instinct to it, right? Because that's what humans bring. Right. And, you know, I think the, the classic is, example of this is like the money ball. Like if you look at sabermetrics with baseball, mm-hmm. like, yes, for sure, you can do a really great baseball team just on paper if you just look at the numbers. But then those guys all have to go and sit in the clubhouse after a hard loss. And if they're all like your coders division that you mentioned, where they're all in headphones and not associated with one another, they're not going to build up like a good team chemistry. So you need someone who knows that side of the game. And really, you know, like it's, it's so boring because the answer is always like a mix of the two and there's nothing definitive anymore. But like, yes, you're totally right. You know, I think like, if you don't have both of those, then then you're missing part of your addressable market. You're missing part of your addressable audience. And is that in the way of less humanity or too much humanity almost where you're just kind of beating the same message into the same 10 people over and over? Yeah. Zach, you seem to be in a, a, a good place. You seem um, happy with, with where you are in your career. You're, you seem very, you know, kind of um, balanced as a as a human being. Can if you were to go back to maybe it's it's that version of Zach that's that's filming that commercial. Maybe it's an earlier version. If you kind of go back, knowing what you know now, to some version of yourself that needs that <laughs> needs needs that person to talk to. But what right. is it? What what is it that you think you would say? You to know, that younger version of yourself. It, it's interesting. It's a, a, such a good question. There's been one or two occasions where someone early in their career journey will ask me, like, what do you think is the most important thing? What should I be doing? And I will always say, develop technical skills. Even if you just start with knowing how to reset the printer, develop some sort of technical skill that you can do that you can be relied on for. And I, you know, I think that that, that's been very crucial for me. If I could go back and give myself a piece of advice, it would just be to calm down and you don't have to get there in a single weekend. It's going to be all right. You know, I just like, I went through so many jobs in such a short amount of time in my early twenties, right out of grad school. And I probably like it's good experience to look back on, but it was a stressful time because it just felt like nothing was going to stick. And I think that if I had now, you know, with the benefit of a little bit of hindsight, I can see like the helpful bits of information that I was able to glean from all of those experiences while I was in them. I just wanted everything to hurry up. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's insightful. Um, and I think that's probably, I suspect it's universal in a way, you know, I mean, we, we want, we want to grow up fast. We want to absorb as much information as possible. And, you know, I think f- for me, you know, I wish that I had enjoyed the moments more. Totally. Um, I was, I was one of these people who just like was have, I've just always been really bad at celebrating. 
And, you know, and, and I look back and to whatever kind of success I've had along the way. And, and it, it didn't, because I didn't take the time to, to really celebrate, it, it's almost like it didn't happen. You know, like it was just a blip and then I was stressed out again. And, you know, you have these things throughout, through your life that, you know, every once in a while something happens and, and for a moment, all your problems go away. Right. And, and instead of just saying, wow, that feels good. We then create a whole slew of new problems to deal with. And, totally. and I just wish I knew that lesson. I wish that, that I could go back and say, Hey dude, this is about to happen to you. And when it does, I want you to just breathe and absorb yeah. and feel it. Totally. And I think, you know, it goes back to what you were talking about earlier with the speed at which information moves. I think so often we feel like the need to keep pace. And that's something like with the benefit of a little bit of hindsight that I mean, exactly what you're saying. Like, I wish so bad I could redo so many moments of triumph so that I could enjoy them and not feel like now I have to move to the next thing immediately or I'm indulging too much or resting too much. Yeah. Zach, I feel like our, our, our interview got really heady, <laughs> which is great. I went and people are like, wait, what, what about the marketing tips guys? Where are the marketing yeah. tips? But I think they're, I think they're all in there. I think we did a good job of laying out a really good foundation of how to think about things. We talked about patience. We talked about celebration. We talked about like the moral compass and finding like the value in what you do. I mean, we had a lot of good subjects there. I love it. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Zach, what's the best way for people to learn more about Miraflora or if they want to reach out directly to you um, and just, you know, talk to you about stuff? <laughs> how do they do that? Yeah, Miraflora, we're online, miraflora.co, M-I-R-A-F-L-O-R-A. I am on Twitter. It's at Zachary SM. It's probably not super helpful for a lot of diligent resources to advance your career. But if you like uh, soccer commentary and dad jokes, then I'm your man. Mm, I like dad jokes. So I'm going to follow <laughs> I'm not you a dad, those. but I just tell very yeah. bad jokes. I think those jokes just remind me of my dad. And so I'm like, oh, I like those jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Zach, thank you so much for coming on. Um, listeners, we've, 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 thank you for listening. We, we did an hour and a little over an hour. Uh, just to remind you that DTC Growth Hacking is presented by Field Test. And Field Test specializes in making advertising on the open web super simple with tools that make the ultra complicated world of programmatic advertising accessible to all size businesses. That was a lot. I got that out too. That was good. Um, my name is Rob McGray and thanks for listening. DTC Growth Hacking, it comes out on Tuesdays and we try our best to have the best movers and shakers in the industry with the smoothest voices around like <laughs> Zach. You know who I think would be a really great guest for you guys to get is Rob McGray. Maybe I can come back and ask you some questions oh. next time. Oh, oh, turning the tables. I Oh, wow. <laughs> I like this idea. Yes, yes. Okay, yes. You've told okay. a lot of stories that I feel like are only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, but I feel like you're going to end up taking my job here. Um, 
<laughs> this could be how we, this is how it begins, Zach. I see how this works. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm playing the long game. Yeah. But I would love that. I've always, I don't know what episode number we're on 20. We should set some number where we've kind of build up to it. And, uh, but that would, that would be awesome. And I know Peter and the gang would love that too. Yeah. I'd love that. You just, you pick your lucky number and I'll be here. Okay. Listeners, stay tuned for a future episode where Zach turns the tables on Rob and asks him all kinds of questions about (laughs) DTC growth hacking. Thank you guys. Enjoy your week. Thanks, Zach. Thank you. This was a Field Test Podcast.